Section 8 of The Ring and the Book An Interpretation by Francis Bickford Hornbrook. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 Pompilia. Pompilia, who now speaks, appears in a very different light from the others to whose voices we have been listening. She is not defending herself against a charge of crime, like Guido, nor is she a friend of the court, like Caponsacchi. She is a dying girl who sighs out her pitiful story, not so much to vindicate herself, for she feels no need of that, as to place the man, who had risked all to save her, in the right light. The keynote of her narrative lies in these lines. Then... I must lay my babe away with God, nor think of him again, for gratitude. Yes, my last breath shall wholly spend itself in one attempt more to disperse the stain, the mist from other breath fond mouths have made about a lustrous and pellucid soul, so that, when I am gone, but sorrow stays, and people need assurance in their doubt, if God yet have a servant, man a friend, the weak a saviour, and the vile a foe. Let him be present by the name invoked Giuseppe Maria Caponsacchi. In her narrative there are no literary or historic allusions. Guido and Caponsacchi were men acquainted with the world, its literature and art, and they reveal this knowledge in what they say. But there is nothing in Pompilia's story which indicates anything beyond the particular happenings of her own experience. She tells us about her church, San Lorenzo, and its curate, Otto Boni, of her play with her friend, of the goat that was made to stand on four sticks, of the madman who seized her hand and proclaimed himself to be Pope. She has no knowledge of the places through which she passed on her journey from Arezzo to Rome, or of the historic associations and memories of either city. Once she mentions the name of a famous physician, but only because he had visited her and given her some medicine which cured her childish ailment. Once she refers to the Molinists, but the word is put into her mouth by the Archbishop, to whom she has gone for deliverance from her trouble. He says to her, For, see, if motherhood be qualified impure, I catch you making God command Eve sin. A blasphemy so like these Molinists, I must suspect you dip into their books. When we remember that Pompilia could not read, we realise what a woodenhead the Archbishop must have been. Then the narrative has not the order and method, which we find in that of either Guido or Caponsacchi. It is the simple outpouring of a soul to the loving hearts of the nuns of her life experience, controlled by no other motive than the desire to write her friend. Her discourse cannot be analysed. I shall, therefore, attempt only to indicate its general course and spirit. Pompilia begins with the most simple facts of her life and tells us her age, the name of the church, San Lorenzo, in which she had been baptised and married, and her name in full, Francesca Camilla Vittoria Angela Pompilia Comparini. She has been the mother of a son, Gaetano, exactly two weeks. She rejoices in the fact that her babe has been baptised 
and is safe from being hurt, and she hopes that when he becomes a man and asks what his mother was like, someone will assure him that she was not like the girls of seventeen whom he will ordinarily see. Her name, she hopes, will keep her apart in his mind from what girls are. Her son, she knows, will have no knowledge of his parents, nor will there be anyone to care for him. For that reason she has given him the name of Gaetano, that he may have the help of a new saint after whom only a few, as yet, are named. She does not want him to know her sad story. Everything in her experience has been a surprise. Pietro and Violante had declared that they were not her parents. She had always supposed that husbands loved their wives, but Guido hated her. Then people persisted in saying that Caponsacchi was her lover. Her whole former life seemed something apart from herself, unreal and fantastic. She recalls the incidents of a few days before, when, with her foster parents, she sat by the fire and talked of the boy who had been given her and what he would do when he was grown up. She tells how Pietro went out and then came back to speak of the sights he had seen and how, while he talked, and all were happy, the end came. She does not think that Pietro deserved punishment, and as for Violante, she had done wrong, but what she had done seemed right to her, and it was meant for the best. She had tried, too, to make all right by the marriage, although it was such a grief to give up one whom love had made her own. Perhaps, on the whole, it had been well. At any rate, now that she was dying, everything seemed softened and bettered. As she leaves life, all the past fades away into calm. She had lived happily with her parents until the time of her marriage, about which at the time she understood nothing, and was bidden by her mother to be silent. She relates how, on a rainy day, she was taken by her mother to San Lorenzo, and married there in the empty church, and how afterward life went on just the same, until she became the witness of the quarrel between Pietro and Guido, and realised that something, low, mean, and underhand, had taken place. Violante, at last, consoled her with a promise of the high position she would occupy in Arezzo as the wife of a nobleman, and the statement that they were to be all together there. Her memory of the four years she lived with her husband was almost a blank. During that time she was sustained by her prayer to God and her hope that, in answer to that prayer, someone would come to rescue her in her great need. She has really very little to forgive. Her husband had some right to feel aggrieved because no money came, as he had expected, with the marriage. Then it was hard for him to learn that she was not the child of Pietro and Violante, and, in his anger at them, he revenged himself on her. She might have known what to do if she had been able to understand what he really wanted. But his plan was so different from anything she could imagine that all she tried to do to please him only angered him the more. Aware, as she was, that there was no communion of soul between herself and Guido, she thought she ought not to live with him as his wife. But the archbishop, whom she consulted, told her that she was to blame for thinking thus, 
and that her proposed course reflected discredit on Eve. Nor did he heed her complaint against the canon, Girolamo, Guido's younger brother. He bade her go back to her husband, and by her conduct towards him send the brother back to book again. But although she obeyed the advice given her, she did not lessen Guido's hatred of her or his brother's advances. She says, Henceforth I asked God counsel, not mankind. When she saved herself by her flight with the priest, people had said she showed herself the daughter of her shameless mother. This criticism made her feel that somehow her mother had been greatly wronged and that she might have parted from her, the child she loved, because she wanted to save her from the fate which had befallen herself. But now, with the coming of her own child, she knew that God would care for him. People, Pompilia says, speak of her relations with Caponsacchi as though he were blameworthy, and the thought of writing him, that others may see him, as she sees him, purity and quintessence, gives her strength. She relates how she came to know him. She had seen him at the theatre, whither she had gone with her husband. As she was seated there, a twist of comforts was thrown into her lap. They seemed to come from Caponsacchi, but, as she regarded him, she felt sure he had not thrown them. Soon after, her cousin Conti came to her box and acknowledged as much. Guido, however, chose to believe that they came from Caponsacchi, and that he was her lover. He called her a wanton, drew his sword, and feigned a thrust. She was so accustomed to this that she did not heed it, but repeated the mere truth, and held her tongue. Guido declared that her amour with Caponsacchi was town talk, and that he would kill him the next time he found him underneath his eaves. Pompilia gives an account of the letters brought to her by the serving-woman, who said they came from Caponsacchi, and explains how this maid, Margarita, tried to induce her to accept the proposals which, she said, were made in them. To all her suggestions, however, Pompilia was deaf until she bade her invite him to appear at her window that evening, and here she gives the motive which led her to do so. She had gone to bed one night, thinking, How good to sleep, and so get nearer death, when, what, first thing at daybreak, pierced the sleep with a summons to me? Up I sprang, alive, light in me, light without me, everywhere, change. I stepped forth, stood on the terrace, all the roofs, such sky. My heart sang, I too am to go away, I too have something I must care about, carry away with me to Rome. To Rome. I have my purpose and my motive too, my march to Rome, like any bird or fly. Had I been dead? How right to be alive! Last night I almost prayed for leave to die, wished Guido all his pleasure with the sword or the poison. Poison, sword, was but a trick, harmless. May God forgive him the poor jest. My life is charmed, will last till I reach Rome. Yesterday, but for the sin. Ah, nameless be the deed I could have dared against myself. Now, see if I will touch an unripe fruit, 
and risk the health I want to have and use. Not to live, now, would be the wickedness, for life means to make haste, and go to Rome, and leave Arezzo, leave all woes at once. Before this, she had gone to the governor, the archbishop, the holy friar, to Guillichini, and to Conti. She had besought them to help her, and all had declined to do so. But Conti refers her to Caponsacchi, your true St. George. As a last resort, she turned now to him, and bade the serving-woman, to her great surprise, tell him to come. Somehow Pompilia felt sure of his coming. She cried, He will come, and all day I sent prayer like incense up to God the strong, God the beneficent, God ever mindful in all strife and strait, who, for our own good, makes the need extreme, till at the last he puts forth might and saves. An old rhyme came into my head, and rang of how a virgin, for the faith of God, hid herself from the panims that pursued in a cave's heart, until a thunderstone, wrapped in the flame, revealed the couch and prey, and they laughed, thanks to lightning, ours at last. And she cried, Wrath of God, assert his love, Servant of God, thou, fire, befriend his child. And lo, the fire she grasped at, fixed its flash, lay in her hand a calm, cold, dreadful sword, she brandished till pursuers strewed the ground. So did the souls within them die away, as o'er the prostrate bodies, sordid, safe, she walked forth to the solitudes and Christ. So should I grasp the lightning and be saved. When, at her bidding, Caponsacchi arrived, she appealed to him to take her with him to Rome, to her own people, and so to save something that's truly a me than this myself. His answer was, I am yours. After some delay the preparations were made for the flight, and at the dawn of day they fled together. All that he had been to her, and had done for her on the journey, was a revelation of all that was good. Perhaps he was not one of the great saints, but he had done something of a saint's service for her, and so she cries, This one heart brought me all the spring. She relates all the kindly services he rendered, how, at one place, he told her all about a brave man dead, and how, at another town which seemed as if it would turn Arezzo's self, he put a newborn babe into her arms. I could believe himself, by his strong will, had woven around me what I thought the world we went along in. Every circumstance, towns, flowers and faces, all things helped so well. For, through the journey, was it natural such comfort should arise from first to last? As I look back, all is one milky way. Still bettered more, the more remembered, so do new stars bud while I but search for old, and fill all gaps i' the glory, and grow him. Him I now see make the shine everywhere. So it was, until the dread morning, when her husband and the world broke in upon her slumber at the inn, and she saw her angel helplessly held back, while Guido towered triumphant. 
Then came all the strength back in a sudden swell. I did for once see right, do right, give tongue the adequate protest. For a worm must turn if it would have its wrong observed by God. I did spring up, attempt to thrust aside that ice block twixt the sun and me, lay low the neutraliser of all good and truth. She had borne the wrongs inflicted on herself and her parents, and the possible harm to her unborn child, but she could not bear to have her angel's self made foul in the face by the fiend that struck there. That was the reason why her first and last resistance was invincible. Then she learned that prayers move God, threats and nothing else move men. She will not have the service fail. Her angel saved her. The judges had done right when they consigned her to the care of the nuns, who said and sung away the ugly past. Through his service, her babe had been born in quiet of her parents' home. It would not have peeped forth, the bird-like thing, through that arezzo noise and trouble. Back had it returned, nor ever let me see. But the sweet peace cured all, and let me live and give my bird the life among the leaves God meant him. Yes, through what he had done, she had been given the opportunity to think over her past, and to allow good premonitions come to her unthwarted. Her child had been born, all in love, with naught to spoil the bliss. Now, as never before, she realised the meaning of God's birth, and how he grew like God in being born. As for her foster parents, all is over, they see God. For her husband she gives him, for his good, the life he takes, and she prays that he may touch God's shadow and be healed. He has rendered her a service in destroying a bond which was hateful to them both. As for her child, he will be the safer without father and mother, through God who knows I am not by. She is ready to compose herself for God, recalling, as her last words, all that she owes to Caponsacchi, her soldier saint, and she closes with the words, My fate will have been hard for even him to bear. Let it confirm him in the trust of God, showing how holily he dared the deed. And, for the rest, say, from the deed, no touch of harm came, but all good, all happiness, not one faint fleck of failure. Say, I am all in flowers from head to foot. Say, not one flower of all he said and did might seem to flit unnoticed, fade unknown, but dropped a seed, has grown a balsam tree whereof the blossoming perfumes the place at this supreme of moments. Pompilia remembers that Caponsacchi is a priest and cannot marry. She thinks he would not marry if he could. Marriage on earth seems such a counterfeit, mere imitation of the inimitable. In heaven we have the real and true and sure. Tis there they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels, right. Oh, how right that is, how like Jesus Christ to say that. Be as the angels rather, who, apart, know themselves into one, are found at length married, but marry never, no, nor give in marriage. They are man and wife at once when the true time is. Here we have to wait, 
not so long neither could we by a wish have what we will and get the future now would we wish aught done undone in the past so let him wait god's instant men call years meantime hold hard by truth and his great soul do out the duty through such souls alone god stooping shows sufficient of his light for us in the dark to rise by and i rise in pompilia we have a revelation of one whose pure beauty redeems the world in which she moved from universal blame without her in the poem as without such souls in life we should lose our hope in humankind we need her perfect whiteness to hearten us as she heartens the pope with the assurance that the world in the absolutest drench of dark ne'er wants a witness some stray beauty beam to the despair of hell she is different in all respects from the other characters who reveal themselves in the poem guido and caponsacchi are men acquainted with life they have had some experience in affairs guido has been connected with the pontifical court for thirty years he knows the men of position and power caponsacchi is the polished man of the world and he occupies a dignified and influential place in the city of arezzo through their speeches we are continually finding references to famous works of art to the classic books of the nation to the theologians of the church and to the prevailing theological thought of the time but pompilia is only the girl wife only seventeen and her portraiture is in perfect keeping with everything we know of her age rank and experience of life she says nothing that contradicts these her speech in the poem does not contain a single literary allusion there is not the slightest indication of any acquaintance with historic events hardly a word that shows a knowledge of anything beyond her home and the happenings in the immediate neighbourhood she knows the way from the house of her father and mother to the church of san lorenzo in rome and she speaks of her parents the priest of the parish church the marble lion rushing from the wall the goat the man made to stand on four sticks the madman who claimed to be pope the poor image of the virgin thin white glazed clay in the niche the game she played with her little friend that is all she knows of rome and she knows no more of arezzo her husband's palace the church the theatre and the houses of archbishop and governor and the few streets that lead from one to the other are all that she tells us of a city rich in memories of men famous in literature and art in state and church the great world of eminent men and memorable deeds was to her unknown reading might have widened her world but pompilia could not read and all she says is limited by her experience of life once she refers to a famous physician but she remembers him as the thin austere man who gave her the bitter dose that cured her childish ailment so ugly all the same she mentions the molinists who were exciting attention in the religious world in her time only because she happens to recall what the archbishop said to her when she appealed to him for relief pompilia too knows nothing of the places through which she journeys from arezzo to rome caponsacchi gives a description of every step of the way the name and character of each place the time when they arrived 
and when they left. His is the narrative of an educated man, but Pompilia's story reveals her utter ignorance of places and times. If we knew about her in no other way, we could yet easily see, from her account of the journey, that things outside herself made little or no impression upon her. There are only two distinct points in her mind, the home of her husband in Arezzo and the home of her reputed parents in Rome. Her only concern was to escape from the one, to find refuge in the other. She recalls, with a vivid sense of gratitude, all that Caponsacchi did for her and was to her on the way. She knows that this one heart brought me all the spring. But of the journey, all she can tell is, each place must have a name, though I forget. How strange it was. There, where the plain begins, and the small river mitigates its flow. An ignorant girl could not better describe her ignorance. There are many indications of the artlessness and simplicity of Pompilia. The splendour of art does not impress her. Her child was born outside the walls, and so had to be baptised at St. Paul's, the nearest church, of which she chirps, A pretty church, I say no word against, yet stranger-like, while this Lorenzo seems my own particular place, I always say. St. Paul's is one of the most beautiful churches in Christendom, but to Pompilia it is a pretty church. Art is of no consequence to her, compared with San Lorenzo, the church in which she felt at home. She amuses herself, just as a child might, even in the presence of death, with a recitation of her names, Francesca, Camilla, Vittoria, Angela, Pompilia, Comparini. She calls her son Gaetano, because the saint, after whom he was named, was a recent one, and had not grown weary like her own five saints, and so might take better care of him. Her faith is so simple, natural, and spontaneous, that she can weave amusing fancies around it, and still reverence it, not less, but all the more. Pompilia makes no defence, and utters no denial. She is too conscious of her innocence to feel the need of asserting it. And she needs no defence. The simple unfolding of her life experience is enough. Others may plead and reason. She only tells what she knows. As one listens to her, he finds it impossible to suspect her of any wrong. All that she says has the ring of truth in it. Her purpose in speaking is to vindicate the character of Caponsacchi, who had risked all to save her. She wants him to know that his service has not failed, and that through him God has enabled her to rise into a higher and better life. In all she says, she reveals a soul that was animated by concern for others. We might easily suppose that the experience of Pompilia would render her harsh and uncharitable in her judgments of her little world. Who could blame her if it had? Almost everybody had failed her, and had been unfaithful to trust, as far as she was concerned. Her own mother had sold her before she was born. Her foster parents, whom she had been brought up to believe were her real parents, had publicly disowned her. Her husband had disregarded all the sanctities and even the decencies of the marriage relation, making her life a protracted martyrdom and ending with the murder. But, in spite of all these things, her judgments are kindly, 
and manifest the love that never fails. She finds some justification for everyone, some motive at the heart of each, which may lessen the blame attaching to each act. While she keenly realises all the wrong that others have done her, and knows how bad it was, she has a perception which enables her to understand the impulse of good in the blameworthy deed. She says that Violante did wrong in buying her from her poor mother and passing her off as her own child to her husband. But then, she thinks, she meant well by it. Her own childhood was happier and better than it would otherwise have been, and old Pietro's days were fuller of sunshine because of the presence of a child in his home. Then Violante did not think she had really told a lie. She thought, moreover, real lies were lies told for harm's sake, whereas this had good at heart. Then, she thought, Violante had meant to atone for her fault by giving her in marriage, in which everything would be righted. To do this she had sacrificed the dearest affection of her heart. And so Pompilia declares, I know she meant all good to me, all pain to herself, since how could it be aught but pain to give me up, so from her very breast? She meant well. Has it been so ill in the main? Pompilia's judgment of her poor unknown mother is equally tender and true. She imputes to her motives of which she, herself, is conscious. Might not she, terrible as the thought is, yield her Gaetano to save him? And so, might not her mother have sold her to save her? If she sold, what they call sold, me, her child, I shall believe she hoped, in her poor heart, that I at least might try, be good and pure, begin to live untempted, not go doomed and done with, ere once found in fault, as she. Even the miserable serving-woman, Margarita, who sought to tempt her to evil, is not utterly condemned. To her, she says, Let it suffice I either feel no wrong, or else forgive it. Yet you turn my foe, the others hunt me, and you throw a noose. She cannot find any goodness in Guido. For him she attempts no palliation, but she pardons him, and gives him the life he takes. Perhaps, after all, he had rendered a service, though he meant it not, in her murder. He had thus ended a relation which was essentially false. Her presence had always been an annoyance to him. Therefore it will be well if they never meet again. Still, even in this soul, Pompilia believes there may be something to love. I could not love him, but his mother did. Even for him, she thinks the presence of God may avail, and she prays that it may. But where will God be absent? In his face is light, but in his shadow healing too. Let Guido touch the shadow and be healed. Pompilia's insight grows and deepens, so that at last she trusts in it more than in any merely external authority. She is a devout Catholic, and to her mind an archbishop stands for God. When she had gone to him, and had poured out her troubles, as she would to her mother, he gave advice, and she received it humbly. But she learns through her experience that he was mistaken, and cries, But I did wrong, and he gave wrong advice, though he were thrice archbishop. That I know. 
She divines that the instinct of her heart is wiser than any official authority. It would be foolish to say that this young and ignorant girl revolted against ecclesiastical authority. She could never have dreamed of such a thing. She had only learned that there were some things she knew for herself better than anyone in the world. In these she was taught of God. Pompilia shows that she had the gift which enables one to divine the natures of men, so that she trusted rightly, even against all appearances. The comforts of the theatre seem to have been thrown by Caponsacchi, but Pompilia knew better. Here I could reason out why, I felt sure, whoever flung them, his was not the hand. A web of lies is woven about him. She hears letters read, purporting to come from him, which must have made him odious to the soul of a pure woman. But in spite of them, she feels sure that he is true, and will render her true service. She knew him by the crystalline soul. Her experience has taught her to see through shams. The way in which the governor threatened her foster parents with punishment for theft, though they had only received from her what they had given her, and the indifference with which she had heard her complaints, taught her how little impartial justice there may be in the administration of affairs. To her it became clear that the forms of justice were often mere travesties of the vision of ideal right that is revealed to the pure in heart. Nothing is more beautiful in the character of Pompilia than her conviction of the dignity and responsibility of motherhood. It was that which prompted her flight from the home of her husband. While she had no one to care for but herself, she was resigned to suffering and death. After all, what did it matter? Deserted by her parents, hated by her husband, persecuted by those about her, her appeal for comfort and help disregarded by church and state, a lonely girl in a strange city, it could make no difference how soon or in what way the end came. That was her only way out of trouble into peace at the last. But when the sense of a life, more than her own, dawned upon her, she saw a new duty and loyally responded to it. She called for aid and determined to flee. She accepted the obligation to defend that trust of trusts, life from the ever-living. This sense of motherhood revealed to her something of the way in which God cares for his children. God will care for the little one, whom she is leaving, better even than her mother heart could wish. He shall have in orphanage his own way all the clearlier. If my babe outlived the hour, and he has lived two weeks, it is through God who knows I am not by. So all the significance of the Christmas time and the mystery of the Incarnation grew clear to the mother heart. Now she felt what she had always believed. She discerned, in her own life, what the theologians reason about, and often, by their reasonings, obscure. She and Mary were alike mothers. I never realised God's birth before, how he grew likest God in being born. This time I felt like Mary, had my babe lying a little on my breast like hers. Such is the character revealed in the story of this ignorant Italian girl of only seventeen. She had, in her own way, learned the deepest wisdom of life. The source of all her thought and action was love for others. She saw the evil of the men and women about her, 
but she saw more clearly the good in the evil. The hardest experiences of hatred, indifference, and neglect only imbued her with tender pity and a spirit of forgiveness. By her fidelity to each duty of life, as child, wife, and mother, she acquired that insight which pierced to the core of things and infallibly distinguished between the true and the false, the real and the apparent. Through her brief experience of motherhood, she realized the sweetest and noblest ideals of the Christian faith. End of chapter 8